Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Run-In. We've got a really exciting interview with former GB international Sarah Rollins coming up. But Will, first of all, we're going to carry on with something that we were talking about in the last episode, which is the Norwegian Federation's ruling on the national championships. Mm -hmm. And um, because we had a comment in from Ralph Street, who said he lives in Norway, he lives in Oslo, so he is, you know, really kind of up on all this information he said um the rule change is you have to be a norwegian passport holder to get a medal the residency requirement for foreigners so foreign nationals have to be resident in norway from the first of january in order to participate in their like the norwegian championships he says that's been around for for a while and has he thinks that's kind of become accepted so for example it prevents say like the Kibberts brothers the Swiss their Swiss brothers coming over and running in a relay team and Sweden also has kind of similar rules partly due to some controversy apparently over the previous rule which is you couldn't run in the same discipline both Swedish champs and home champs and um, Graham Griswold actually ended up winning the Swedish relay after the leading team also you know fell foul of the rule so competed in two championships Thank you, Ralph, for the the clarification on that one. So yeah, it seems like a lot of the it's all about who who can be awarded the medals in the Norwegian Championships. Okay, yeah. So that seems a lot fairer than we were kind of describing yeah. it as <laughs> last week. Maybe getting up on the uh, on the soapbox a bit too much. But uh, yeah, thank you, Ralph, for the for the clarification. And yeah, like you say, his Ralph loves his rules. I think that's yeah. the bit of orienting he loves the most. So um, <laughs> yeah, so in senior classes, uh, medal diplomas and Royal trophies as well, which I'd like to see what a royal oh. trophy is, will only be awarded to Norwegian nationals and passport holders. So, um, yeah, I guess it kind of makes sense. I guess that's relatively similar to what we have in Britain as well, in terms of you have to be a passport holder to um, to win the British Championships. Um, yeah, seem... and I mean, like we said last time, like I hope it doesn't put anybody off running no. in these races or becoming part of a Norwegian club and stuff for the relays. Um, I think we will just have to wait and see. On that one to be honest yeah, yeah. gonna be interesting next year I wonder if any any clubs will fall foul of the rules because i'm sure someone will um so there could be some controversy next summer at the uh, norwegian national championships but let's see oh you love a bit of controversy i, You'll be, I do you're looking out for it <laughs> I, revel, I, I revel in it i cause it <laughs> sometimes but <laughs> I so it. um i also want to touch on something that's been happening since um the last podcast which is the british schools championships mm-hmm. and and in fact loads of teams came around from all over the country to black park near slough not the greatest really technical necessarily technical routine but it's a very flat park with lots of pits depressions tracks undergrowth and stuff in fact it was actually better than i expected technically that just looking at the map just earlier but apparently Pinewood Studios were filming on the area and they were like delayed in, in kind of leaving. So not all, right. all of the like set had gone. So apparently they had to do last minute changes to the courses. And then for the old, this is only for the older years, um, the con- loose control descriptions didn't match the course and descriptions on the map. So... They had to like void a few um, controls on some of the older years courses, but hopefully, uh, like you know, that decision has been made um, and corrected in in the results. But um, yeah, a bit of a shame with that one. With but it was some actually really 
good kind of competition. Loads of um, schools from Sheffield came down, as you might expect. They've got a fantastic kind of junior program at the moment that mm-hmm. they have, you know, hundreds of juniors racing round and, and people spreading the word of mouth in the Sheffield schools, which is fantastic. So in the primary schools, which is years five and six, Sheffield schools were the top and the school from Bath was third. And then if you're looking at, um, in small secondary, actually, it was Red Maids in Bristol won. Uh, and then Michael Hall School were second, including three of the Heap kids. So um, uh, Stan, Scarlett and Tommy. So with Scarlett winning in the year girls' year 12. So they ensured their school was second. But in the large secondary school, we had um, High Stores in Sheffield. They won. Um, wins for Freya Triner, Robbie Lightfoot, also top threes for Alex Elliott, Jamie Lightfoot, James Bryant and uh, Lenny Scott. Second was the school from Co- was Cockermouth School. Uh, wins for Daisy Rennie, Emma Crawford, Joe Sunley, also top threes for Isaac Hunter and Myrtle Ashworth. Third were Olverston Victoria, of course, a school that have long been associated with orienteering. But there were 11 schools with nine runners to count for that competition. So I think that's just... That's just fantastic. And you can see a lot of like the names we're used to seeing if you're following that junior kind of orienteering. A lot of the the regular names did turn mm. up to that one. So that was really nice to see. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And, and shows kind of junior orienteering seems to be in, in quite a good um, state of health as well. A lot of names there, which they've got either brothers or sisters who are competing in the in the higher junior uh, classes of kind of 18s and 20s at Jaywalk mm. and, and things like that. Hopefully next few years you'll see some of those names coming through i know um there's a yeah like you said there's a very good group of um, juniors in sheffield who are who are training very hard there and working working well together so yeah it's exciting stuff and um interesting that yeah when i was a junior cockermouth and olverson were kind of the top two teams and they're, they're still in the top three so i was at a school yeah. with no other orienteers other than me <laughs> me my brother <laughs> and one other person so um never got to compete in british schools i only went once and it was a horrendous yeah. day but uh no it's fantastic that all the all the schools went down shame about the courses um yeah. but i guess yeah you can't do but a lot can you do really yeah, yeah. You can't do a lot about it if, uh, if a film sets on the area but <laughs> yeah and uh, and but also i think the british schools is is a great way to to make spread the word of orienteering amongst mm. say like your classmates so for example um you know me and my siblings would would occasionally run for our school but we'd get along a couple of our of our classmates of our friends to kind of come along with us and that's actually a really great way of getting more people involved in the sport so you know as well as these high scorers from from some of these these schools there's also you know the people that were further down the list that the fact that they've just gone to the British schools is fantastic and they've yeah. been part of that team and they've had fun and they've got rounds and, you know, they've hopefully had an enjoyable experience that will lead them to, to getting more involved, to be honest. Yeah. Definitely. And it, uh, and we'll chat a bit about this later with Sarah, but it's all about kind of enjoying being in the event and doing it with, with your friends and going to new places and, you know, being on those bus trips and, and going to, you know, having all the all the fun that you have on them when you're outside your normal environment and um that's where you start and you get the buzz for orienteering and the trips like Lag and Lear developed from that and Badaguish and um our junior trips to Halden as well. So it's all about that kind of being away from home and with your mates and doing something in a in a different environment. So that's just the start of it for a lot of people there and um yeah, hopefully uh, we'll we'll see them all continue. So let's move on to now our interviewee for today, Sarah Ronins, who was running at the internationally at elite level for 14 years for GB. 
thank you very much, Sarah, for joining us. Um, we wanted to talk to you because you you didn't kind of grow up with orienteering uh, in the same way that you know a lot of juniors or a lot of like the the current elites have done. So explain for us how you got into the sport. Um, so I started orienteering age nineteen, or maybe yeah, no, about nineteen um, at London OTC. One of our uh, permanent staff instructors was a chap called Phil Batts and yeah. he that's the officer training corps yeah that's right yeah and um, actually it was a friend of mine I was sitting in the back of a bus and she said oh next weekend we're going orienteering you run why don't you come and run for us and um, I said oh, okay then and I ran in the London district uh, what was it London district relay championships at Headley Heath which must mm. be quite a select few groups of people and um i ran a c course and we won as a team um a, and a so relay. i was it was a re- yeah well no it was your first um, race god yeah well it was it wasn't you went out and did a course on your own and then your combined time was the uh was the result okay, okay. um and uh, you know phil bats was in the car park with me and he said this is a thumb compass this red needle points north you line it up like that and then you go this way i was like okay and um and that was it off i went i've got my map it's quite interesting see where i went to but um yeah no so i was hooked though i absolutely loved it what were your first impressions of the sport can you remember what you first thought of it um well i got paid to go that was a bonus (laughs) that's why that's why my sister goes lorienteering a lot at the moment because she does the same yeah exactly so i think you know if you go to a a six-day event you got 24 pounds a day or something plus free accommodation and you know it was very sociable but but actually, to be fair, my main thing was that I I loved running, but I also loved the fact that it was running with a purpose. And so um, and I hadn't been doing proper running. I, I ran as a kid and then I mm. went to a school that didn't really do much running. And so I didn't get back into it until I was about running, that is, until I was about 16. Um, and then suddenly it was great to be able to do something where, you know, like I say, you had a purpose. And mm. for some reason, my brain just works um the way that you need it to, to work for orienteering so I picked it up pretty quick and um, already doing a bit of running meant that I sort of seemed to do relatively well relatively quickly um, and after that you know I was I was hooked so yeah. So beyond Phil Batts telling you how to how a compass works what kind of coaching did you get in uh, initially? Phil did used to take us on all these events and I have to put you know take my hat off to him after every event uh, we'd go to a pub and um, he would sit down individually with each of us. We'd mark our course on and then we would talk individually about where we'd been, why we'd done that. Um, and I would say that that combined with the fact we used to talk about it amongst each other, you know, mm. there was always an opportunity for learning. And then um, I think in my first year, I got selected to go with the army team to Sweden Mm-hmm. Um, and that was amazing. So we did two weeks of an of a training camp in Sweden, which included normal orienteering plus uh, feltathlon, which is obviously shooting and orienteering, um, and then some really cool stuff like it's called puncto, which is uh, where you follow tapes in the terrain, and when you get to a control, you have to put a pin through the map to say where you are. Um, so oh. some really cool different yeah really cool types of orienteering um, and so I went on that trip twice I think and that was just really great um, in terms mm. of you know t- two sessions three sessions a day nine tour- night orienteering I did my first night event in Sweden 
Wow. Uh, you know, just just really great opportunities. Um, unfortunately, it's not, it doesn't happen anymore um, mm. for a variety of reasons. But that those were those were amazing um, opportunities for training um, and just meeting people from the army team and aspiring to what they got up to. It's how I met Dave. I met Dave there, and then obviously um, Dave then helped me understand how to running train. Um, mm-hmm. So I used to meet up with him and his mates at lunchtime and go running. And, you know, I'd run before, but I'd never really trained. So suddenly understanding to do intervals, to do hill reps, um, training more than once a day, training more than three times a week, you know, all these things mm-hmm. and uh, meant that my, you know, I got I, I was I became a better runner as well as mm-hmm. um, the orienteering. What do you remember finding tough, finding difficult about? starting orienteering hmm i don't know um was it all just quite natural did it feel like you know it just came easily yeah i do have maps from the from the first orienteering i remember the jk in cleveland and uh, and i just i did make some big mistakes but because i was in a you know all of the guys at the otc we all made big mistakes it wasn't i don't know um so it just seemed like a natural progression. And then um, gradually, as I understood how you orientated, I definitely, um, well, in everything I do, I don't like people telling me what to do. So I generally learn best by myself anyway. I learn best by making mistakes. Um, and I learn best by racing and um, doing things under pressure. And so actually having the opportunity to do a lot of events, a lot of racing, because we did a lot. When I was OTC, we used to travel a lot to go to a lot of events nationally um and so I just, just did loads in the first two years I oriented most weekends and for several weeks in the summer going to different events I can't really remember struggling but that doesn't mean it didn't happen but it's just <laughs> I never got depressed by it I just um you know just assumed that was part of the process you're in that big group I suppose you're you're kind of comparing yourselves and maybe not at that point comparing yourself to orienteers who've been doing it for ages yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, it wasn't until, um, and I don't quite remember what year it was, but there was a, a UK Cup race on mm. Long Valley South in the first two or three years of orienteering. And I ran the W21 Elite course and I came fifth. And then mm. suddenly a whole group of GB orienteers, girls, including Yvette Baker, came up and said, who are you? Um, <laughs> and I think that's when it kind of hit me that I'm okay at this and actually that's quite exciting I might actually be able to and I think at that point I started running elite because before that I was just running I think I was running well I don't know I must have been running long but also when I first started I was running W19B I think Mm. um so um yeah that pretty shows my age yeah and then I don't I mean I don't keep track so much of what um the elites are up to now in terms of the UK league but um Mm. this there was a really good uk based uh, competition system and i remember traveling a lot for to take part in events where you knew that everyone was going to turn up so you could race against them mm-hmm. uh, and we had mm-hmm. some really cool chasing start races um and i guess also it was a time when they were just starting to introduce the short course yeah you know, the middle course and obviously just starting to introduce sprint racing as well so there was a lot of excitement lots of new stuff was coming out and i just happened to be in the right place i guess they had no preconceptions about what orienteering was so i just thought oh this is normal and just sort of took part and carried on 
That's really great. It sounds like you were really thrown in the deep end and you just managed to to get on with it and, and swim. So your experience is going to be different to other people's who, who don't grow up in the sport. What, but what advice would you have for them? Um, well, I mean, I thought about this and I think that it's something that I try and think about with my son, Tommy. Um, and that's, uh, first of all, I try not to tell him how to orienteer too much. I think everybody's brain is really different and it's interesting to see how someone else might have done something but Mm -hmm. I think that everyone's brain works in a really different way and so um, it's I think it's not a bad idea especially if someone's doing reasonably well to allow them to explore how they do something Um, because for example if remember there's a training camp in Sweden once I was talking to uh, John Musgrave and I was talking to Bilbo um, and we were all and, and somebody else and we were all describing how we used our compass and we all used it in completely different ways um i think bilbo famously uses his in a way where he just um fingers the thumbs the map orientates his uh, map to north and then uses some kind of triangulation to um then decide which way to run whereas other people are lining the map up with the direction of travel and other people are using base plate and and so as i say so so that's the first thing so I try not to interfere with Tommy's kind of like how he um, uses his techniques. But at the same time, I do then afterwards try and say, oh, have you thought of this? I mean, most of that is complete pointless. Um, but <laughs> but we do talk. Dave's much better. And Tommy listens to Dave, doesn't listen to me at all. Um, uh, so that's that. And then secondly is try not to get too caught up in the outcome. Um, try to uh, be out there and enjoying orienteering because I think that um so much is if you if in orienteering if you are very focused on the outcome um you so yeah so to put that another way um uh you can't control what other people are doing particularly if you don't see them in the forest so if you're on your own in the forest you absolutely the only thing you can control is what you're doing Mm -hmm. and so the best thing, the, the way that you can be most successful at the end is to not think about it at the time and to be the best you can be. Um, I mean, I was in the era of uh, Steve Sylvester, who was very much talking about mastery. And I really now it was it's difficult. It's but now really buy into that. And I think that there's a danger to lose your love of orienteering if you start orienteering at a high level and focus a lot on where you are in terms of rankings and mm. in the world what do you mean by mastery sorry yeah so mastery so so being the best you can be in the forest we had a what was our steve sylvester introduced oh john duncan introduced the phrase um which probably a lot of you know which is give me a map of my magic and it was about you know having the best run you could have it's a different way of thinking about it rather than saying mm. i want to be in the top 10 yeah. well that's only if you happen to be fast enough to be in the top 10 good enough or in tier to be in the top 10 and then don't actually make any mistakes so it's about trying to be the best that you can be on each leg which then will result in you potentially having a really good run compared to other people so yes so i think it's about trying when you're in the forest not to compare yourself to other people it's about mastery of the the puzzle that the um, planner has set for you and mastery of the, the techniques that you can use and then executing it and uh, yeah so I think it's all of those things and and that's obviously really difficult to do but and I went through a period of enjoying orienteering less 
around about the time that I stopped orienteering. And that was for a lot of reasons, including stuff outside orienteering in terms of just being a mum, working full time, you know, all these things that make life stressful. But then I found, uh, I returned to orienteering and I absolutely love, I really genuinely enjoy going to events and being in terrain. And that's something that is sad to lose you know, I think that if you if there's a way of finding that and harnessing that while you're still young and racing at a high level, um, that's a really important thing to to try and capture and hold on to. Mm. So yeah. it's all about being process driven. And that's the key. Yeah, absolutely. And having that good feeling and, and that you can't force it, mm. um, you know, but then um, how you find that is going to be very individual and, and, and tricky because it's so easy to go, oh, well, I wanted to be in the top 10 or I think I can be in the top 10 or top three or whatever it is. But um, I think you have to let that go. And some people are fantastic at it and others really struggle. And I really hope that what I'm doing now with Tommy is not putting any pressure, you know, talking about, you know, just enjoying yourself and yeah, thinking about how great it is to be out. I mean, he came back today saying, because we were running on Hankley today and saying how great the forest was. And, mm. um, so that's the kind of thing that I want to hear. And so I try to use that kind of language when I'm around him. So I'm trying not to be outcome driven and not focus on results at all. We'll see if it works. <laughs> <laughs> that's, such, that's such a refreshing way of looking at it all. And, and definitely something that, yeah, like you say, I think a lot of elites struggle with because you get pulled into this cycle of uh, like selection results, World Cups and trial races. And it just becomes quite not stale, but you get obsessed by beating other people and not actually looking at yourself quite a lot. I think I, I, I certainly find that very, very relevant anyway. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that used to really help me was, was going to cool places and going on cool terrain. So mm. I used to really enjoy the Park World Tour that was on when I was younger. So, mm. you know, we travelled all over the place. We do little bus tours around Eastern Europe and, you know, obviously, and then there was Taiwan and, uh, and China and Japan and, all, you know, that stuff as well but just orienteering on really different maps being with uh different people you, you didn't know very well but then got to know you know just getting that fun back in um and uh, i would definitely re- recommend that kind of you know those early season stuff you can do with the Mediterranean mediterranean orienteering champ stuff you know um or any of those kind of feel-good races where you're going somewhere sunny and warm and yeah, I mean, I expect a lot of you guys do that anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that is the funnest part of orienteering as a senior. I think the fact that you have the freedom to go and experience all of these cool places and just see a completely different part of the world to what you would see on your normal kind of beach holiday that somebody might go on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in Japan, I've been to Nagoya. I've never been to Tokyo apart from to land on the plane. I've been to some random <laughs> bit of forest. I've orienteered on the slopes of Mount Fuji. Um, and did a sprint race in the Fuji Mountain Children's Park or whatever it was, but um, never did any of the touristing stuff. Same goes for most of the Europe, uh, you know, uh, most of Europe. I've been to most of the forests in, well, no, I say, I've been to a lot of forests in uh, Europe, but I've never been to the capital city. Um, <laughs> yeah. Something I'm sort of quite proud of. <laughs> I know exactly what I mean. A, a lot of my friends are kind of like, getting to the age of stag do's and stuff and going to Prague for a stag do. Like, oh, I've been to. Um, Czech Republic six times. I've always only ever been to a forest. I've never been to the city. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How cool am I? And, and they just don't understand the concept of not going and doing any <laughs> touristing. But I think it's something fantastically unique about orienteering, and that's where process can get you as well. Not focusing on results, process can get you there. 
Um, so, Sarah, your some of your kind of best international elite results have come in um, sprint races, and you said they they were kind of starting to develop when you were starting orienteering. When did you first come across the sprint discipline? Oh blimey! Uh, <laughs> trying to think, my first sprint race. Well, I know that I did. Obviously, I did the World Champs in two thousand and one, which was the first sprint race. So I was obviously training for sprint before that, but I think it was mm. very much forest based. And I think that, um, but Parkwell Tour were doing sprint racing at that time. And I'm fairly sure that I went to China in 2000. And I know I was at Leibniz in, what was the previous ISOM? Was it 99 or something like that? Mm. I was at the Leibniz. So I was in Leibniz when they were doing that, the Leibniz convention. So the previous ISOM was decided um, at that one. And we Mm -hmm. were... So we were definitely in Austria then. And I, th- I think that was 2000. So my introduction was almost certainly through Part Word Tour, which is more like 25 minute sprint races, which is, it was so fun. It was just mm. the best. I remember seeing, um, I've seen some videos from those first ones and people just doing parkour between, like ju- flipping between houses and stuff like that. It seemed completely alien to what sprint is now. Yeah, so there used to be like the golden split or something like that. So somewhere around the course, one of the splits between controls would be a time trial. And if you won that time trial, then you got cash or something like that. And <laughs> you, you knew which one it was. And so, you know, suddenly you'd put on this massive burst of speed to try and get the fastest time on that split. Um, yeah, they were trying out lots of different things, like putting controls in the middle of lakes, and which was all right for Thierry, but not so good for, I think, <laughs> small or interior called... Uh, she was called Rita Marie Kolkala and we were using Sport Ident and the Sport Ident was on top of the fountain and the Sport Ident was on its sort of half metre post and she couldn't reach the control. Obviously, it was not contactless and she's just sort of jumping in the middle of the lake trying to get this control, which she couldn't get. Um, those were the days. Uh, and, and people say that, you know, current sprint is a bit of a joke, but that, that seems fantastic. Yeah, well, I would up. say that the current sprint certainly at the world champs not so much now but like in 2010 i used to be really disappointed like the it just got really boring world Mm. champ sprint just became too standardized so it wasn't difficult enough it was just a running race uh, in Mm. some ways and uh, i very much think that sprint should be in the most technical bit of town you could possibly find well yes we need to take it to the public but it's so tedious when it's just a running race and so um i mean i wasn't in china but i would imagine that the races out there were quite interesting Um, oh yeah yeah um you know and you know whatever about the results in terms of the chinese athletes but nonetheless that looked really interesting again Mm. whereas i think sometimes the world champs can be a little bit um too like it's oh it's not fair so we can't do that i mean i got um, am I right in thinking that the, the 2015 race in Scotland, they wanted to make it much more technical, but they weren't allowed mm. to. The controllers kept saying, no, you can't do that. No. And actually, I met the Swedish doctor uh, in the drug testing tent and she said, oh, well, that was easy. We planned that course last night, you know. Yeah. So, it, think... you know, it's what people already expected. Yeah, definitely. I think they wanted to go up on the hill behind the arena as well and put it a little bit in the forest. But that's all they couldn't do that, which is what we had on the open course that was run that day. And that would have changed, completely changed the results and thrown a new thing into the mix. So, yeah, I, I think it definitely did get stale for a while because the Chinese races were incredibly technical and you're put under real pressure. And you saw that from some of the European results of people like, I guess, well, pick up pick up Gustav, who came 60th 
because he couldn't cope with the technicality, but he was one of the stronger the stronger runners. Um, yeah. But yeah, so it's interesting how the sprint disciplines changed from you know forest through to like more running base, and then maybe it's starting to get a bit more technical again as people are geeking more. Well, I guess that it all depends on who's hosting it. And I suppose if you're in Norway, the towns aren't really old enough to be really tricksy a bit, you know, like China's got must it's obviously got some great places. But mm. maybe now that it's going to be every other year, where a nation that perhaps can't put on a forest one but has some really exciting sprint stuff can put on some races, maybe that will you know, there'll be more um They'll want to make it as technical as possible and they'll be able to choose much more easily because they don't have to be in the town that's right next to the forest that's good. So it'd be interesting to see what happens. Hopefully. Yeah. So World Cup in Italy next year should be the start of that. So into the... Whereabouts um, that? Where is yeah, that? I think it's in the northeast. So hopefully similar to where yeah, Jaywalk was. Yeah, it's kind of in the hills up from Venice. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it'd be amazing if it, they get it in proper sort of... Um, you know, the little hill towns. And so how how else has kind of like the World Cups changed since you started running them? People like geeking more, things like that? Well, yes. I mean, um, that's one of the things that I just like really... So so now when I go out or interiorating, it's got to the stage where I almost won't read the final details because I'm so bored of geeking that um, I pretty much turn up at the start line because I just don't want to know. And I try not, you know, I won't look at maps. I'll just turn up and go because because it takes the fun out of it for me. I'm, you know, I, I, I want it to be me versus the forest and the and the and the course, not what can I possibly glean to, you know, find out beforehand. So, yeah. So I think that for me, I'm much prefer it if it's a new forest nobody's been there you can't mm. geek you know that's not going to happen for you know there's going to run out of forests yeah. um, so actually just on that Sarah, so i've got i've got your list of um results up from your from your world cups and walks so your first world cup race was 2000 in portugal i think in marina grande oh, didn't Possibly. I do one in Ukraine before that? Oh, Ukraine. Sorry, yep, Ukraine. You are correct. Yeah, I You're think correct. so because that's stuck in my mind a lot. Because Ukraine's such a bizarre place to get to, and it was a full-on experience. Sidetrack. Is that the one where the story is about people getting chased by dogs? I think I've seen. Um, I seem no, to remember that's the second something. Ukraine. Yeah, is that, so that, is that like, Ukraine walk? That was walk in Ukraine. So there was a World Cup in Ukraine, I think, in two thousand. Because I'm fairly sure it was my first one. You know, it's just things like just the toilets were quite interesting. And the way that um, and the fact that we got stuck at passport control for three hours in the back of a bus in 40 degree heat because they wouldn't let us through. And then on the way back, we bribed the police and we got an escort to the border and we went straight through, you know, things like that. Uh, And also, you know, where you get all the so it was I'm sure it was because they gave you um, in those days, they gave you all the control descriptions for all the courses on one sheet of paper. And I remember Heather Munro having hysterics when they handed these out. And I said, do I have to go to all of these? And it was like, there were like 50 <laughs> controls. And it, because what you then did is you wrote out your own ones on your, because um, I think it must have been punching. Oh, still on the pin punching. Still on pin punching. Yeah, I'm fairly sure it was. Uh, some people listening won't know about that stuff. <laughs> I think that was the last one, but yeah. So um, back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, so just in terms of, so that trip to Ukraine in 2000, your first World Cup race, and then your final um, walk appearance in 2013. What was the change then between the two in terms of, you know, what was available to you in terms of information? Um, well, there was, it didn't seem like there was any information available 
but but you have to remember that I didn't really know what I was doing at that time. You know, it was also new. Uh, so 2000. So I was 24. So I'd been orienteering five years. It all seemed so new. I didn't really know what I was doing. So there may be a lot of stuff that I just hadn't worked out. But I definitely, you know, there was a massive difference in the amount of information you got beforehand and obviously what you get in the, you know, where they describe virtually um, everything that you might expect in the sprint final, whatever it is in Finland. You, you can't really compare it. It's just so different. And I almost prefer the original way. I much prefer where nobody knows anything and you just go out, you just have to, it's just you and your map and your course. Mm. No, I, I completely agree. It's getting too sterilised. There's not, they don't have the kind of surprises that get thrown up when no one expects, you know, just this random block of forest not to be there. I think that's that's maybe, you know, one of the good things actually about competing in China is that people didn't have the chance to do that. And then, you know, the terrain was surprising. Yeah. Uh, and a lot a lot of the questions, you know, I ask the elites maybe on, on the finish line is, you know, were you surprised with the course or anything? And the answer is the answer's often no, because just the amount of geeking that they have been able to do. Um, and Sarah, do you have like um, a highlight of your international elite career? Is there a race you particularly, you know, remember... For, for a good or a bad reason or, or whatever there's some ones that were like bad because I was so frustrated like I think there was a world cup in Italy in 2005 and in the sprint race my very good friend Helen Winskill came third and had I not made something like two or three minutes mistake at number one which was in the forest I would have also have managed to have done a, an exceedingly good race because it was really technical in the in the town. Mm-hmm. And there were like two controls in the forest on a, on a spur. And then the rest was super technical. And I just totally and utterly messed up the first control. So that's like one of those ones where it's just so frustrating. Um, and then the other ones where... So you mentioned Portugal in my first year. That's one of my really fab memories because um, I did surprisingly well. 19th place yeah so and in yeah so and and um in the split i was in ninth place at the second to last control or the last control and then i just slightly missed a re-entrant and just lost something like 25 seconds or something and and the thing that i remember most of all is that Joran anderson who was the coach at the time came into the room afterwards and um he was talking to heather and then he turned to me and said you know sarah you surprised me today and that is like for me was just gold dust it was just like oh uh he thinks i'm okay you know um, um and uh similarly heather also um we were training in in fact it was training for that particular world cup and we were training in um i'm going to say this really badly we were training in skona in south sweden is that correct anyway and it's sand dune terrain something like that something like that um and we were training and i was seemed to be training really well and we were running head to head a lot of the time so it's me heather and jamie just on a training camp for us because we all happened to be in sweden at the time and heather turned to me and said you're quite good at this um and um (laughs) again it's these little things that people can say to you and i've tried to remember to do that for other people i mean obviously that's assuming that they think that my words have any value at all but try to because I think those kind of words of encouragement can really like change things for people and get boost their confidence and um, so if you notice that someone's done something then saying it is really important and I really you know thank Heather for that because you you don't have to say that to people and uh, yeah so if you look up to someone and then they tell you that you've done something well it's it can it's a really positive boost 
I think uh, that the other highlight, I just used to really enjoy the Park World Tour races just because mm. they were fun, lighthearted. You never had a clue what you're doing. You're running around like, um, you know, fairgrounds um, uh, with nobody in them, uh, running around hilltop towns in Italy, you know, going to some really cool places, doing some cool orienteering uh, with little pressure, being given money at the end for coming in the top uh, three or six or whatever it was, and having the opportunity to really practice racing hard without that pressure i think it's a shame that uh, they stopped for a while um obviously because of financial reasons because someone got injured yeah so so those are my really good memories and and some great experiences with the gb team as well multiple uh top tens at walk best individual place of ninth in the sprint the same day that jamie took gold in 2003 in um in switzerland that must have been a pretty good day for the uh Know, within the GB team, you know, we're talking about all that process and stuff, and you guys nailing that race must have been pretty, uh, pretty amazing that day. Yeah, that, I mean that was a great race. I mean, talking about, I've said all this stuff about not preparing beforehand, but <laughs> as a team, we totally smashed the preparing. So we spent a, a lot of time doing. So Dave Peel um, did some brilliant coaching for us that year, and we spent a lot of time training in similar terrain, so similar towns. Um, there's not a town near Rappersville that I have not run in and I know all the streets. And then I spent about, in total, about a month almost living in Rappersville because I spent one week with the squad, another week with the squad, and then two weeks on my own uh, training in Switzerland before that. So I knew Rappersville really well. And that was because I had time. That's probably why I don't like preparing because I've never had time. I've always been trying to squeeze in work and training and racing. And um, But that year um, I had a lot of time on my hands. Um, and I suppose if you prioritize something, uh, which is what I did that year, and then I was able to, you know, um, put that into practice. And so I would have come eighth if Gunilla Svard, who had crossed the line but had failed to punch the last control, wasn't allowed to go back out, punch the last control and then cross the finish line again. Um, really? Uh, yeah. That's so, yeah, I know. But I... I'm, yeah, who knows why we didn't put a protest in, perhaps because we were so excited about Jamie's, you know, gold. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, she crossed the line and then her team manager said, oh, you didn't punch last control, go back out. So she went out again. I mean, obviously she had time oh. to do that. But nonetheless, I'd been running my little socks off. And um, and in the finish, you ran into this ice uh, hockey arena. And mm. on the map, it was just grey. But when you got inside, the great arena had a fenced area with pigs in it um, and the control was on the far side. I and I, I just ran, I think I ran through the pig section and out the other side. They'd even put like little fake trees in as well um, because there was nothing on the map to suggest that there was going to be anything inside. Um, I mean, and I'm assuming that's part from, you know, that's partly why Ganilla just, you know, ran straight to the finish. But um, yeah, but yeah, I, I don't, you know, one place, what is it, you know, but yeah, it was a, it was a brilliant day and um, very excited to be part of the GB team. And they got a bronze in the relay as well, the guys. Um, yeah. So it's very exciting. I, I remember being—I was there. I was ten. I was watching that on the um, oh, on the TV in our Swiss flat in Rappersville because it was too. I remember it being too hot for us, for mum and dad to let yeah, us out and really watch because it was the whole week. It was a horrendous heat wave and yeah, racing in that cannot have been enjoyable. I don't remember it. I don't remember uh, the heat at all. It's ingrained in my brain. <laughs> Before all, I mean, um, the things that I remember the most are playing Scrabble 
in the sprint holding area with Jamie and Steve Sylvester and Helen Bridal before the race. Um, so played a good game of Scrabble. And then Jamie won his race and somehow Dave managed to find out that, because um, he was at the start with us, that um, Jamie had done that. But he wasn't allowed to pass that on, obviously, to us. And I remember the camera right in my face just before starting. And I don't really remember the rest. Yeah, but it, it, was a, it was a brilliant day. But as I said, I don't remember the heat at all. Just me. Oh, just I know, I do. I do remember because I do remember on the long race, everybody was like, because I didn't yes. do the long, but they were coming in and like um, Ollie had to do a drugs test and he couldn't pee for like seven hours or something ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Ollie Johnson. Yeah. I'm fairly sure oh. it was Ollie. Yeah. Oh, wow. Dear. That cannot have been enjoyable at all. I didn't realise oh. that. <laughs> um so i want to like move on to kind of since then and and things you've been doing since um your international elite career explain to everybody uh what you do for work first of all okay so um i'm a gp but i don't really do general practice i work for the military in a rehab unit which is a bit like kedley court but it's like the next level down so i look after musculoskeletal injuries for people who are injured in South region, which is anywhere from like London down to Winchester um, and so on. Hopefully in the new year, I will qualify as a consultant in sports medicine. And I have done quite a few bits and bobs with teams, not just orienteering, but I've worked with the Invictus Games. I do some pitch side rugby. Um, I do a variety of little bits and bobs on the side. But my main role is with the MOD, uh, with a particular interest in women's health at the moment in terms of getting back to sport after uh, pregnancy. I mean, the reason I kind of wanted to bring this up because... Um, I mean, in in SN, in our club, sometimes we like coming to you for some little advice about, you know, if you've got an injury or something like that. So do you have any kind of training tips for minimising risk of injury, particularly like orienteering specific injuries and maybe for for juniors who are starting to up their training or students who may be going to university and also kind of upping their training? Because there's a big, you know, there are a lot of students go to university, overtrain, don't do the correct training and, and end up spending time out away from the sport through injury? Yeah, so it's a huge question. Mm. Um, <laughs> and there's so many bits to that answer. However, um, I think in a nutshell, the first thing is don't suddenly increase your training. You should only increase it by you know a gradual amount. Um, and that means not only number of sessions a week, but it means number of sessions a day, number of sessions a week, number of high intensity sessions a week, um, and also making sure that you keep the days off as well. So you only get faster when you're resting. You don't get faster when you're training. You break your body down. So rest day is really important. Sleep is critical. Eight hours sleep a night if you're an athlete, uh, but probably not more than nine, interestingly. Um, yeah. But that's another matter. Um, <laughs> and napping during the day, also good gives you another boost of growth hormone and then strength conditioning strength and conditioning strength and conditioning strength and conditioning at least two sessions a week um, if you want to run fast it is good to lift weights you need to do that well having good efficient uh, movement patterns which can be improved by having stronger muscles so mm -hmm. stronger muscles around your pelvis core stability so that's a really sort of outdated term lumbar pelvic control whatever you want to call it but if you've got your legs moving underneath you and your arms are moving as well, if you don't have a, a, a sort of a well-controlled 
central section, which is the main mass of your body that you want to move forwards, then it's like having your legs connected to something that's connected by jelly or by spaghetti. So you need to have that really good lumbar pelvic strength of control uh, to, so that you can then move your mass forward on some really powerful legs. So strength conditioning, balance work, stability work, a little bit of plyometrics, agility work. These are really important things. And you see the Scandinavian clubs doing it really well. And I think that's something that we should do more of in Britain I, um, because it's slightly tedious to do on your own. So perhaps it's something that people in universities need to, as a, as a club, need to um, you know, put these sessions together. I know that Rachel Elder used to run one in Sheffield. Um, yep. I don't know if she still does that. She certainly did it for the uh, four years I was there, and that was a real massive benefit to me, and um, got me in fantastic shape for the 2016 World Universities because it, it like we kind of drilled down into each individual element of the sprint race, and because it was quite hilly, like um, essentially a castle with loads of stairs, so she drilled down into exactly what components you needed to run well muscularly on on the stairs, going up, going down, and all of those things. So. Yeah, I try. And I remember we had a conversation in 2017 at Walk about it, Sarah, and that was kind of a game changer for me as well. So I structure in at least two hours a week of of that kind of strength work and um, thoracic spine and all of that kind of thing. Exactly, and um, you know the most efficient runners. So if you look at people like uh, Joe Pavey, Mo Farah, running, their upper body is doing a lot of work, and um, you know your lats will drive what's happening down below. But there is absolutely no point your arms moving if there isn't a stable bit in between. And you can get a lot of power out of your arms, which helps your legs, if you have a stable bit in between your arms and your legs. Um, so um, you definitely run faster if you're more well controlled. And the evidence is slightly dodgy in terms of uh, whether or not strength training protects from injury. Probably it does. But the research is tricksy to do. Because people will do strength training and will still get injured. But that may be because they're still doing stuff that still overloads the system uh, beyond what even their strength training has able to do for them. But logic dictates that even if it's not about injuries, even if it's about being a better runner, you will run more uh, successfully and faster and more efficiently if you are connected correctly. So, yeah. And finally, uh, in terms of, you know, advice to people going to uni and things like you have to look at all the things that are stressing you in your life. It's exams, it's work, it's, you know, as in university work, but then also work outside of that, your social mm. life and your training. And if you try to do all of those at absolute maximum, you're just going to end up in a mess on the floor. And so uh, and, and also combine that with like illnesses because you're suddenly back in an institution where everybody's <laughs> passing bugs to each other. And so it, it's about making sure that you get a good base in the winter, trying not to race all the time. If you want to be super successful in the following summer, you're going to have to look at how you manage your load of stress. And if you are absolutely desperate to win at work the following year, you're going to have to say, do you know what? Well, then I probably won't be able to do this, which might be your social life. Or if that's really important to you, it might be that you're going to have to back off on university work. Talk to your, your teachers about saying, can I do half a year this year and do more next year? Whatever it is. I know that sounds pretty radical, but you've got to decide what your goals are. And then mm -hmm. if you genuinely want to achieve them, you're going to have to do something or, you know, to make that happen. Otherwise, you'll probably do everything a bit mediocre. Um, and I have to say that, you know, in my career, I, I never I, I had one year where I did uh, six months work over 12 months. 
But for the rest of it, I was working full time and probably as a result, never was able to fully meet my potential. But you make your choices in life. I could have left the army. I could have changed how I'd done things. I could have, you know, taken some time out of medicine, but I didn't. And I probably didn't want to. And I probably wouldn't be where I am now. And I still had a good time, just didn't maybe quite do the best I could possibly have done. Mm. But there you go. Yeah, and that actually leads into my next question of about, you know, now, how do you fit training into your working life? Because it's a problem for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, so I have a great job. So there's a reason I've been <laughs> in the same job since 2012. And that is because it's like uh, 10 minutes from home. Um, and apart from the fact that I really enjoy the work and I've got some great colleagues, I also get uh, uh, 90 minutes at lunchtime. Uh, I work in 90? the gym. 90 i work in a i work in a gym um so it's really easy for me to do strength and conditioning because literally i stagger out of my office uh put on some training gear and then walk into a gym that's set up for rehab because i work in a rehab gym and all the people that i work with are physiotherapists and strength and conditioning coaches so again makes it a bit easier Mm -hmm. um yeah, and I work next to the Stoke Canal. I can run along that and get onto Long Valley if I want to. So I have a really great local setup. And, and that's why I've stayed in the job so long, apart from anything else. I really enjoy the job, but it has some great... Uh, so I can train twice a day if I want to most days. And I've done that for quite a long time now. You've had, you've had your elite, international elite career. You're still enjoying orienteering. What do, you, what do you still want to do in orienteering? Is there a particular race? Is there a particular place you want to go? Is there, a, you know, is there still any achievements you want to achieve looking, looking ahead with orienteering for you? So I don't think it's about achievements. I love going orienteering. I love going to cool new places. I'm really, really enjoying taking Tommy to cool new places mm. um, and allowing him to run in different terrains, different countries, at the moment, I've been going to the World Masters most year. I've done that for the last couple of years. I really love that event. Everyone's mm-hmm. so friendly. The races are great. <laughs> you know, you meet people that you used to run with when you're, you know, back in 2001 or whatever. <laughs> so they're really fun and they take you all over the world. So it's not so much uh, the results. It's cool to go to the World Masters and do well, but it's also cool just to go and run in different places. So I think it's more about what we talked about at the beginning. It's about going to mm-hmm. different places, different terrains, different maps, different formats, um, and just, yeah, just enjoying it, really. Are there any places you'd really love to go that you haven't been yet? Um, hmm. I haven't orienteered in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be cool to go to. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hopefully, maybe, possibly, if we can afford it and we can take Tommy out of school, uh, to go take Tommy to Japan next year. Not next year, year after for the World Masters, which would be really cool Mm -hmm. um, because I love Japan. It's a really cool country and I really enjoyed orienteering there. So those that's that's probably the two places I'd really like to go to at the moment. Yeah, I hope you can manage to take Tommy out of school and go to Japan, go to North America. That would be fantastic. It's not, not an important year. Well, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, before before he starts hitting exam years and anything, just, yeah, just just do it. Like, it's going to be... He's telling me he'll kill me if I, if I go without him. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a fantastic interview from Sarah Rollins there, really giving us an insight into, one, um, just what it takes to come into orienteering at a, a late stage and 
um, from a non-orienteering background and how she developed from complete newbie to uh, one of the best British athletes we've we've had on the international scene. So fantastic insights there and definitely some stuff for, that I'm going to take away from it and hopefully everyone else can as well. But moving forward, we're going to talk about some of our, our current um, internationals. Um, particularly looking at the British Cross Challenge, which happened in Liverpool this last weekend at Sefton Park, which was the GB selections for the European Championships in Lisbon. And we had Megan Keefe, recently crowned uh, Young Scottish Sportswoman of the Year. Congratulations, Mm -hmm. Megan. Coming third in the under-17s and under-20s race. Yeah, fantastic result for her. And that gives her selection for the Europeans. And she was very close behind first and second all three just crossed it across the line one after each other so yeah fantastic to see Megan continuing um her success in in the cross country as well mm. and we also had uh Chris also Chris Jones competing in uh senior men's race yep and uh so Chris last year was um around about 12th place and this year he came back in seventh so that meant he was fourth Senior man, uh, they mix the under-23s and the seniors in um, in the final race of the day. And that means it's an automatic selection for mm-hmm. the European champs as well. So Chris, um, back into a GB vest after his appearance at Sterling International Cross Country last year. And I think it's going to be broadcast on the BBC. So everyone can uh, go and have a watch of that and cheer both Megan and Chris on. I, I did have a little chat to Chris and he said it was a bit of a surprise to get an automatic spot as it was a, a pretty muddy course out there after the recent rains so a tough <laughs> slog for everyone and we had quite a few other athletes competing there as well uh, Alex Carcass uh, Jack Leach who's now moving more onto the running side of things but yeah a lot of other people racing at uh, the cross challenge but yeah Chris and Megan really doing us proud there and getting a couple of GB vests so hopefully everyone yeah. can uh, tune into that in a couple of weeks time fantastic and I believe we've also got news of the UK Elite O-League after having uh, Duncan on uh, the last episode. Duncan's back again to let us know um, what the events are, I believe. Yeah, tonight we're excited to announce the 2020 UK Elite League races um, running from March to May next year for juniors and seniors. That's uh, MW 18s, 20s yeah, and the older guys. So five weekends you need to put in your, in your diary. First weekend in Scotland, starts by the coast. On the 7th March, we have a sprint at a newly mapped village of John's Haven between Aberdeen and Dundee. Chris Mendel's just finishing up that map now, but uh, that's going to be a good little sprint race. The following day, 8th March, long race on Burstmore in Deeside. So, yeah, also put on by Maroc, and that's a bit long and uh, some people might have run there in the uh, Scottish Six Days 2017 yeah 2017 I think at the moment I think it's advertised as the D-side weekend but the C-side D-side weekend is uh, what, what, it, what it should be <laughs> so that counts for juniors and seniors race three the British Championships 22nd March another new area Golden Valley good proper long race good, good long winning times well, I'd hope so, considering it's the British champs. Yeah. Um, I checked out the... It's a, it's a new area, but I checked out the OS map, and it's actually pretty hilly. It's a good mix of, like, forest and mixed woodland, so uh, it'll be a tougher race than many people expect. Okay. The JK. It's got to be in the league. It's in there every year. So, yeah, sprint on the Friday, Stockton Riverside. This is the 10th of April to the to the 12th of April. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, Stockton Riverside, the sprint. A bit of a break from the army areas or the campuses, so... Um, 
There's been some good route choice across the river and the uh, docks there. Saturday 11th, middle race, Sneeton Forest. That's a sloping forest with a bit of contour detail. And then Sunday the 12th is Pickering Forest, which looks really cool. It's a lot of contour detail on a steep, steep slope. And it's pretty green as well, so it'll be pretty tricky. I've got to say, that looks pretty rough. Yeah. No, not going to lie. It's going to be tough, but it'll be good. It'll be good. The fourth weekend, you need to listen carefully for this one, because juniors and seniors are in different places. Juniors have a selection race weekend in the Lake District, with a middle distance on Blakeholm above Windermere. And then the next day, they have a sprint round Windermere Town, uh, just down the road. So that's a junior-specific selection race for likely EYC and Jaywalk. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And seniors, it's Wok uh, 2020 and Urban Wok this year, so we're putting in a special senior sprint training and racing weekend, the same weekend, the 25th, 26th April. And we're going to split that between Nottingham, Coventry. We're just thrashing out the final details of that, but expect at least one race to count towards the league, probably on the 26th of April. To round things off, the final weekend, back to the Lake District, Saturday 9th of May, British Middle Distance Champs at Summerhouse Knot, which uh, the British relays were there a couple of years ago. It's pretty intense on some steep spurs, so that'll be a great race. And then finish off another proper long on High Dam on the other side of the road on the 10th of May to round up the series. Yeah, so that was uh, the British champs in 2017, I believe, where in the men's relay, all of the top three teams got disqualified. On final leg, so uh, and Megan Carter Davis was up in the in the top five on first leg for quite a long time. So very technical, very tough. Yeah, I think that could be one of the, that's going to be the best forest weekend I'd say of uh, twenty twenty. Okay, so uh, weekend not to miss there in the Lake District in uh, the start of May. Um, do you want to, Catherine Duncan? Have you got any eye, people you're going to look out for to uh, to take the titles next year? Let's go for Catherine first. <laughs> Thanks. I'm going to put you both on the spot. I mean, I think it depends who goes to them, to be honest. I think, um, uh, obviously, Megan Carter-Davis has had a fantastic season this last season. If she gets around to them, I think um, she could be a huge contender. So, too, we're going to see how Fiona Byrne steps up into her first year as a senior next year on the Mm -hmm. women's side of things. And and also expect uh, Grace Malloy to feature as well, although both of them students uh grace having just uh recently started at um oxford university so i don't know how you know they're going to balance their studying and racing all that kind of stuff um and the men's are oh, the men's is always so open really like um you know when i was commentating on the the middle distance there were so many names in the hat and i think um it's going to be someone who can be consistently good who who's going to be able to take that one and we'll see who again like who who makes that journey to go to to all of those races as well i'm going to uh, peter break and my dark horse on the men's side mm-hmm. he had some few standard results last year but if we can put a good series of races together he could uh could do well okay and on the women's side uh yeah megan's obviously a strong shout but cecilia anderson i reckon she's the Absolutely. Yeah. seen her for a few years now so good mix for us and sprint experience there I'm I'm going to say that Megan Keith is going to take the senior title. Oh, bold! I'm going to going to call it now. Um, and uh, she's, she's, she's a, too top, young. I don't, I don't care. I'm going to. Well, she could she could go for the uh, the double, which is winning the uh, W18s and the W20s. Okay. And I think Fiona Byrne once did that two years in a row. All right. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Good luck, Megan. Yeah. Good luck, to Megan. <laughs> uh, you've, I've just cursed you, and you're not going to win. <laughs> 
Thank you, uh, thank you, Duncan, for that. And um, yeah, hopefully see everyone at the um, elite races next year. Uh, Catherine, you've got those in your diary now. I have indeed. Yes, I'm Excellent. poised and ready to book my accommodation and travel. Good stuff. And hopefully, I'll be commentating it. A good few of them as well. Yeah, that'll be hopefully. awesome. There'll be all the dates are on the website, and they'll be all across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, of course. So yeah, get them in your diary. What's the uh, the tag at at UK? Elite O League. Yeah, that's right. right. Okay, follow them on uh, Twitter, Instagram. And of course, we're going to, uh, of course, be following it on the podcast as well. So that's pretty and much yes, it. Of course. For, um, that's pretty much it for this podcast. Uh, Will, what are you up to in the next couple of weeks? Got any orienteering lined up? Yeah, so on uh, on Thursday or Friday, I'm heading out to Stockholm for a pre-season camp with um, EFK Leidinger. So um, team get together over there to get into some... Tia Mila 2020 relevant terrain so despite it being a sprint walk next year I'm still going to be doing a good bit of Foresto and um, helping the team out at Tia Mila and Eucala and a couple of the other Scandinavian relays so looking forward to meeting our new signings we've just um, uh, got a couple of people who are who are set to join so I won't announce who they are yet but uh, <laughs> quite exciting stuff and um, I'm just off the back of my grand return to orienteering after World Cup of Spook relays so riding high off a win there um, with my uh, teammate Matt Elkington so uh, no, getting back into the orienteering I've had a good few weeks of running training and looking forward to, to getting cracking but um, there's also seven champs on next yes. next weekend as well I think it's um, the core, Army Corps Championships if I'm correct Catherine yeah, it's the Army Intercore Championships as well as the Southern Championships. This is um, a race, a couple of races actually. There's also the there's also a nice event uh, and uh, as well. They were have been postponed from earlier in the year um, when um, they kind of last minute lost permission for for the event. So I know lots of uh, people are going down to that one. I am not. Uh, I am working um, on other things, and um, yeah, I've had, I've had, I feel like I've been doing a lot of orienteering recently with two events this weekend. So for me, it's a, a little bit of, um, a little bit of time off, trying, trying just do some running, and um, yeah, do a bit of work, unfortunately, as well. Ah well, yeah, we've all, we've all got to do it, but um, yeah, a bit of time off's not a bad thing. So uh, best of luck to everyone next weekend who's racing at the Southern Championships um, down in the Forest of Dean. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, Catherine, enjoy your weekend off. Well deserved. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I- yeah, we will be back for the next episode. Yeah, see everybody then. Bye.